electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber. Mike Santoli Kramer has the morning off. Got a bounce in store as we're coming off seven weekly declines for the S&P. More discussion about potential repositioning into month end. Big week of macro with PCE and Fed minutes and a lot more retail earnings from Costco, Best Buy and others. Our roadmap begins with some recession risks and the stock rebound. Futures rallying, but is the relentless sell-off over? Plus, headed to the cloud, chipmaker Broadcom is in talks, uh, deep into talks, to acquire cloud service provider VMware. We'll have more on that. And Tesla's no good, very bad slump. Yeah, the shares are down 35% this month. Let's start with the markets as we look to start the week on a positive note. We are following that series of weekly losing streaks. In fact, we've only had three uh, since uh, world end of World War II, Mike, that have been longer than seven. Seven weeks, yeah. Um, now, those seven-week streaks did not happen in particularly great backdrops for stocks, so it wasn't as if, um, you know, when those streaks ended, it was all of a sudden up and away. But it's a good lesson that markets don't go one direction, you know, for that long, two months in a row. A um, lot of things lining up that would suggest, fi- you know, yet again, I would say, uh, and I think people who've been skeptical and people who are optimistic are going to agree that, you know, you've gone almost almost far enough in the very short term in terms of you know, really hammering sentiment to a depressed uh, state. That's been the case for a while. We've had good bounces along the way, on the way down from less extreme positions, less oversold and all the rest of it. would also squint and look at last week's action and say that, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's a, you know, sort of a, a machine game or not, we're not letting the market go down to that closing 20% loss level. Shouldn't matter. Probably doesn't matter in the long term, but there's an odd history of of the market pausing at that level. And it's all about the recession call from there, right? When you've already gone down 20 percent, does it get a lot worse or does it only get a little worse or does it stop there? The almost only uh, determining factor there is, did we get a recession, the exception being something like 1987? Right. Uh, There's a fair amount of uh, bull food out there today. Uh, Two-month low in Chinese COVID cases. We're still looking for maybe a a lockdown to expire in Shanghai. Got the president talking about maybe some tariff relief down the road on Chinese imports. And then J.P. Morgan's investor day today, David, some decent comments about uh, credit worries maybe uh, being overstated, given the strength of uh, household and corporate balance sheets. Yeah, we did get their credit outlook, so to speak, one of their slides, as you mentioned, Carl, saying it remains positive uh, for whatever that's worth. Although they, you know, they do, let's see, returning to normalized rates will take some time. They do expect charges to return to pre-pandemic levels over time. Uh, but current economic conditions, they say, remain supported. You can see some of the things from that, we'll be monitoring anything that comes out of uh, that analyst day, of course, if there's anything per, uh, in particular that deviates perhaps from what the company's told us most recently with its last earnings. Yeah, I mean, everything seems like obviously there's been some slowing that's working its way through the system, but nothing really trips that wire that says that, you know, you're on the path to an imminent recession. Not nothing, but very little does. And also, you know, you talk about dollar being well off its highs, the euro rallying here. Uh, yields have eased back. 
Uh, inflation expectations are better than the market. You know, I've seen a short-term peak at least. So, you know, the things that everybody's justifiably worried about at least is uh, not getting worse, or at least in the last week. Also, uh, things like biotech, like semiconductors, like speculative tech, like software, like banks, they stopped underperforming last week or in the last couple of weeks. So, in other words, they're no longer, they were the first in to the downturn. And I think what you've seen there is you've had, you know, rolling correction, rolling bear markets. They've stopped rolling downhill, and right. we'll see if that matters. Right. Uh, lowest level for the DXY since April 26th. Uh, that's important to note. We're going to talk some semis in a moment, but on this recession talk, uh, the president in Tokyo was asked about the inevitability of recession. Here's what he said. In your view, is a recession in the United States inevitable? No. Why not? Look, you're, you're talking about the significant progress we've made in making sure we don't have supply chain backups. Imagine where we'd be with Putin's tax and the war in Ukraine had we not made that enormous progress. We're, we're, our GDP is going to grow faster than China's for the first time in 40 years. Now, does that mean we don't have problems? We do. We have problems that the rest of the world has but less consequential than the rest of the world has them because of our internal growth and strength. Speaking of China growth, uh, J.P. Morgan today does cut their full-year China number uh, from 4.3 down to 3.7. So it's been since the 70s where the U.S. grew faster than the Chinese economy over yeah. the course of the year. And then, you know, do we want to talk about nominal growth? Because when you put the inflation on top of that for the U.S., and I think that's one of the, 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 the factors that's causing some static out there, because you can have all these companies thinking their top line looks okay because of inflation plus real growth. So, yeah, I, I, you know, again, the recession question, that's almost the perfect way the president would want the recession question to be asked. Is it inevitable? Well, of course, no, it's not inevitable. It's never necessarily inevitable. And I think that right now everything is Again, normalizing or, or getting into that late cycle phase, credit spreads, right? Leading economic indicators, decelerated but still positive, right? The things that happened before a recession are not yet there. Unemployment claims, usually they go up by, you know, 10% or something like that before you get that moment where, uh, where cycles have, have ended. Well, so, Mike, are you surprised plausible. that we're having this conversation? I mean, no. And we're having it. It feels like so quick. I mean, it feels like it came on fast. I, I agree with that. Like, there's no doubt that whenever you, the scares always come, multiple scares often before you get to a recession. One of the things, though, is this has been such an unusual, compressed, you know, completely idiosyncratic cycle. And, and so all the things that happened on the way up, the market didn't quit on the way up. Um, you know, you saw just credit spreads collapse to historic lows. You know, even during a pandemic. So all the stuff that happened, I think there's a recoil from that. And the question is, are we just normalizing uh, or is it is it basically saying you've got to get ready for the next downturn? Uh, yeah. CEOs, I mean, people talk about the wealth effect, right? And, you know, it's Fed wants the wealth effect to uh, mute spending and, and all that. I think the psychological effect on CEOs that when the market goes down 20 percent and the average stock goes down 30 percent, is probably so much more consequential for the economy in the short term in terms of hiring plans, in terms of what they're going to do, in terms of the risk that they're going to undertake. Uh, and that's, I think, what Wall Street listens to and watches and tries to discern, as opposed to Brian Moynihan at Bank of America saying, people have money, they're still spending it. You yeah. know, that's a slow well, CEO confidence thing. is certainly a key, as you yeah. point out. It's also a key in M&A. Um, we yeah. should probably get to that this morning because it doesn't seem to be stopping Hock Tan from wanting to continue 
uh, to be very acquisitive. Of course, it's such a key component of the overall strategy uh, at Broadcom, a company that he's run for a long time. Remember when it was Avago, AVGO is still the symbol. There's a look at Mr. Tan. Uh, and deal after deal after deal, the latest that uh, is on his radar for sure is VMware. You can see the stock is up after Bloomberg first broke the story over the weekend. Uh, that they are uh, in advance talks. The journal uh, chiming in and late to the party, but certainly can add my, uh, my confirmation as well. They are uh, deep into uh, talks that would involve uh, cash and stock. Don't know the price uh, from Broadcom to acquire VMware. A company, remember, that was controlled by Dell until last fall when they did that tax-free spin. Michael Dell, though, still a very significant shareholder of VMware overall and certainly will be the most important single constituency here in terms of saying, yeah, I like that price. Um, VMware is going, to report, is going to report earnings on Thursday. It's my understanding, and you might not be surprised that they were aiming for uh, an announcement by Thursday, uh, perhaps at the same time as the uh, earnings uh, from the company. Typically, when you get a leak like this, things move up, and so it could come even sooner. I am told, however, there are still... Um, uh, material terms that need to be finalized. So that does at least put some question mark there. It does put pressure on both sides, of course, as well. They are talking about large synergies, from what I'm hearing, uh, for uh, Broadcom, Mike, which is a company, again, that has thrived on doing deals and conceivably has gotten the confidence of the market and their ability to derive significant cost savings from those deals. I mean, you can take a look. Yeah, that doesn't look so good, but give me yeah. a long term on Broadcom to give people a sense as to the value that's been created. $220 billion market value yeah. for this company. Yeah, it was, and, and I was trying to tease out, you know, the 4%, you know, indicated decline in, uh, in Broadcom. As you say, it's known to be uh, an acquisitive company, and this is part of the strategy. Uh, we don't know the price, so we're not, we don't know, you know, how close to that all-time high in VMware of 200 bucks a share any deal might occur at, so that's why the market can't figure it out. But that's not necessarily, uh, you know, the market throwing a tantrum about it, a 4% down. No. I mean, if you want a, a price check, which, uh, again, is helpful perhaps for VMware or Michael Dell, you're getting it on Broadcom, yeah. right? Because, again, it's cash and stock. Unfortunately, have not been able to determine the composition of and or the overall price. But you do get a check on Broadcom stock there. Not too bad. Yeah. If that holds 4% 4 down, not too bad. And again, they haven't been able to tell their story at this point, what the synergy numbers really look like, what their expectations are, what the rationale for the deal is. It was interesting listening to Pat Gelsinger. I don't think we have it, but Andrew asked him about it. Sort of said he'll reserve judgment at this right. point, I guess. It's Former interesting. CEO of VMware. It is interesting. I mean, you know, Broadcom's down, you know, way less than tech is down, down 20% from the highs coming into today. But it's made its way along with, you know, stocks like uh, Qualcomm into a lot of kind of dividend quality relative safety portfolios. So, uh, you know, the, the word has gotten out from Broadcom, we're buying cash flow businesses, we're, you know, you have a 3% yield. So you have to wonder if, you know, everybody's going to, to be excited about, you know, about this possibility. But, you know, it seems opportunistic. And as I said, VMware down a lot from where it had yeah, traded, there, you know, well, two the, years ago. Among the points being made, the strategic rationale you guys have talked about, uh, Broadcom's track record of sort of migrating from semis into software and networking, and then VM at a relative discount to its peers. Yeah has never, you know, rarely at least, be, you know, gotten what people thought would be. It was a very complex structure for a long time, and so maybe never got the, uh, the credit 
for, for, yeah. for the underlying business. So. I mean, again, the potential buyer here, perhaps, and obviously a deal of this size, always a bit of a surprise. But at the same time, when VMware did become a uh, become free of Dell, so to speak, there certainly was plenty of bankers around who believed that during the course of the next year, there might be yeah. uh, might be interest from somebody, including Broadcom. Obviously, you don't want to queer the tax-free status of the spin itself, so certainly you couldn't have had any talks prior to that. But uh, we'll be following this closely. Could be that we get developments very soon. Again, this typically does put pressure on both sides to reach deals as quickly as possible, perhaps before their Thursday uh, the, the, that they had already had penciled in as a possibility. Yeah. We'll see how corporates sort of uh, manage uh, their overall balance sheets. The piece in the, I think it's Bloomberg, looks at Amazon looking to reduce some of their warehouse capacity as we begin to sort of unwind the overbuilding, oh, yeah. some argue, yeah. that we got during yeah, COVID. Yeah, I mentioned that last week, actually, I think, or two weeks ago to Jim. I'd been hearing it from, uh, strangely, from a real estate source. They are. They're subletting a lot yeah. of warehouse space. But we know, Carl, that they built too much. I yeah. mean, that was a key component of the disappointment that they reported. Right. Uh, when we come back this morning, we'll talk some Tesla uh, shares down almost 40 percent since Musk disclosed what he called at the time that passive stake in Twitter. We'll look at the slump and what may be ahead for the stock today as they try to get Shanghai back up and running. Got some interesting calls today, mostly on the downgrade side of Dow, Corning, uh, Gap, Coles, a bunch of retailers and Chevron. Uh, a lot more squawk on the street is still ahead. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Back on April 4th, Elon Musk revealed he had bought more than 9% of Twitter. And since then, Tesla stock has fallen by almost 40%. Is now the time to get in? Let's bring in Oppenheimer Tesla analyst Colin Rush. Colin, it's good to have you with us this morning. Thank you for the time. I wonder, to the degree you can separate Tesla from the overall tape, is this weakness being driven by either Musk selling or China delivery risk or just broad consumer risk on the demand side? I think it's all of the above at this point. Uh, you know, there's definitely uh, some some risk off and some size in positions happening here. But I think there's some some acute concerns around uh, China COVID policy and, and what happens with the supply chain and and how much production actually comes out of that Shanghai facility, which really is an, a, a meaningful margin driver for the company. And so folks are worried what? about units and margins, uh, which we're not what super is, concerned your, about right here. What is your Q2 delivery estimate? 
you know, we're just above 300,000. Uh, you know, there's probably some uh, adjustments that'll happen as we get through the, the balance of the quarter. What we've seen with this company is that they really can, uh, you know, drive an awful lot of volume very quickly at the end of the quarter. You know, we're really not giving them credit for either Austin or Berlin. And we'll see, uh, you know, kind of what comes out of that facility here in the next couple of weeks. But really, you can't get a feel for the numbers until the last couple of weeks of the quarter. And so we'll see how the next few weeks go and, and we'll, we'll make a good uh, decision on where we want to end up on those numbers. Right. Uh, they do say they're going to try to get Shanghai back to uh, pre-COVID levels uh, in terms of production, pre-lockdown levels by tomorrow, a delay basically of a day from their prior guidance. Uh, how much is riding on, on this one particular facility? You know, short term, you know, it's it's uh, important for the numbers, but I, I don't think it really shakes the thesis at all. You know, what we're focused on with this company is really the the learning cycles and the accelerated learning cycles relative to peers. They've uh, demonstrated that they can do that both in terms of technology development, uh, manufacturing uh, throughput, and also on the autonomous side. And, and so I think as, as we get through the balance of the quarter and you see all of this anxiety get built into the stock, we're, we're expecting them to actually put up better than feared numbers and, and you start to see some momentum on the other side from here. And if you go back a year, uh, you know, this is about the time last year when we saw the lows on the stock. And so I think there is also some positioning for the summer that, that folks are getting ready for and, and the potential for a, a soft summer market. And, and our view is that this, continue, this company continues to execute well, even if Musk is distracted. They've got a strong uh, second line of, of management here that, that really do drive the business. And, and we're still very bullish on the stock, especially at these prices. Well, Connie, if if we grant that, in fact, you know, the management of the company has a handle on things and there is a fundamental story that's playing out as you expect, um, has the action in the stock, I mean, it's almost been cut in half from the highs. Your price target essentially reflects it getting back to the highs above $1,200. Does it not reveal what else was in the valuation up to that point, whether it was just momentum, whether it was just this idea, uh, you know, that there was a must mystique that's been somehow uh, undercut. I mean, it seems as if there might have been a little bit of a reality check uh, that's happened here, because even if your newly raised 2024 estimates of, let's say, $15 in earnings are right, we're still about 40 times 2024 earnings. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that in terms of, you know, a generous valuation. Yeah, I mean, certainly we can see ourselves or see the, the earnings number get up to 15 or, or not 15, I'm sorry, 25, even $30 and in that 2024, 2025 timeframe. And, and so that's the debate on, on what the real margin profile looks like. And the companies continue to raise prices, uh, you know, without softening of demand. You know, they're really the only company that's driving this level of volume of uh, electric vehicles into the market and certainly at, at this cost point uh, from a production perspective. And, and so that earnings uh, uh, question is, is a real one. Uh, I think for investors right now, and we're going to get a lot of information here over the next couple of quarters of what those margins look like. And I think the, the deep concern is that the, all the margin is coming from Shanghai. We're not a believer in that. We, we do think Shanghai is net uh, accretive to margins. But as we see Austin and Berlin come online and, and get up to normal run rate, we, we think this company is well into the 35 plus percent gross margin range. And that drives an awful lot of earnings power, which makes the multiple look uh, fairly anemic at this point. Colin, uh, something you just said about uh, Elon Musk and his being distracted uh, caught my attention. You know, does that figure in at all to your view of Tesla going forward? Are you concerned no, at all no. about, the, the, you know, how much time he's spending on Twitter? And by that, I mean both buying it or not buying it and actually just tweeting himself. You know, what we've seen historically is that he's been uh, first a culture setter for the organization and really brings some attention to acute issues uh, as, as necessary. And so at this point, with the company actually executing well and, and operations running fairly smoothly, 
we're not super concerned about him, you know, taking his time. He's clearly a workaholic, spends all of his time working. And so if he's uh, spending some of his time on some of these side projects, it's not a huge concern considering where the company's at from a maturity perspective. We really do think they've, they've gone through that those growing pains that they had a few years ago where they were really, you know, going through some management turnover and execution issues. And, and that seems to have settled down here for the last couple of years. Colin, appreciate that. Obviously an important ticker for all of us to watch uh, in the broader market as well. Good to see you. Colin Rush joining us on Tesla. Take a look at futures here. We'll get more Squawk on the Street when we come back in just a moment. Don't go away. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Some breaking news out of Starbucks. Let's get over to Kate Rogers. Morning, Kate. Hey, Carl. Good morning. Starbucks updating its partners this morning, saying that it's made the decision to exit its Russian business as the war in Ukraine continues. In a statement, the company said, quote, as we mentioned on March 8th, we've suspended all business activity in Russia, including shipment of all Starbucks products. Starbucks has made the decision to exit and no longer have a brand presence in the market. We will continue to support the nearly 2,000 Green Apron partners in Russia, including pay for six months and assistance for partners to transition to new opportunities outside of Starbucks. Now, Starbucks has about 130 locations in Russia, so it makes up a small footprint, and it's been there since the mid-2000s, about 2007. It's also the second major brand to exit Russia in the last few days. McDonald's said it would sell its Russian business after 32 years, citing the humanitarian crisis caused by the war and unpredictable operating environment. The company said the continued ownership of its business in Russia was, quote, no longer tenable, nor is it consistent with McDonald's values. McDonald's has far more locations there, about 850, and it announced its Siberian licensee in the market would acquire its Russian locations and operate them under a new brand, retaining employees for about two years, a non-cash charge of between 1.2 and 1.4 billion related to its net investment in Russia, and foreign currency losses is expected. So two big brands there really exiting the market in the last few days. Back over to you guys. And Kate, I'm thinking back mostly to that memo that uh, McDonald's chief uh, Chris Kempchinski wrote to employees, basically about the, the tortured process, the very difficult process of deciding once and for all uh, to get out. It's not an easy decision. Uh, you got a lot of history there and a lot of difficulty in getting uh, some of those assets sold. Yeah, certainly. And as I said, they've been there for far longer, more than 30 years for McDonald's. And it's also a much bigger portion of McDonald's revenue, about 9% of revenue for McDonald's. Starbucks, less than 1%. Uh, McDonald's is also company-operated, so there was a lot of pressure, if you remember, back in March for them to kind of take a stand and move on. Uh, Starbucks less so because of the smaller footprint, but those are two huge, iconic American brands really pulling out in the last few days. Any reason to think this decision was driven more by Schultz than it would have been under Kevin Johnson? 
You know, it's unclear because he's, he's been back for, you know, just over about a month and a half now. So I think a lot of the focus there under Schultz, as far as we know, has been on this union battle that's been going back and forth, um, perhaps following in McDonald's footsteps. Unclear what really drove the decision here, but kind of taking a similar stance and ensuring that the partners and workers there will receive that pay. They can help to be uh, transitioned to other positions outside of the company. McDonald's agreement is somewhat similar in that the workers at its stores will uh, be retained under this new agreement for up to two years. So they're ensuring that the workers in the country will, you know, have access to pay and resources, something that was clearly important to both brands. Appreciate that, Kate. Good to see you. That Kate Rogers joining us on the breaking news Thank you. out of Starbucks today. Uh, speaking of the consumer, uh, prices at the pump continue to spike, uh, citing higher uh, crude oil costs and some tighter gas supplies. The Lumberg survey says the average price of regular gray gas jumped 33 cents over two weeks to 4.71. Average price of diesel up nine cents to 5.66. Actually, we got some lines on the tape this morning, guys, that the White House is monitoring diesel inventory on the East Coast is, and is prepared to take some measures if it gets too tight. Yeah, it looks like the next area of, of intense concern about, you know, obviously it's a regional market uh, and whether in fact that's going to be a big problem for the summer. Uh, in terms of the overall level, it, it got here very quickly. So if you're looking at the year-over-year change in out-of-pocket gasoline costs, it's definitely a significant jolt, at least, you know, psychologically as well as financially. It's, it's worth remembering, I think, that from like 2011 to 2014, yeah. price of the pump was in the high threes. It was like 370 to four. Um, you know, median household income is 25% higher now. So in theory, you know, uh, it, it can be absorbed. But along with everything else going on, it's uh, it's a tough one. I thought an interesting story in the journal this morning, something I hadn't noted, which is that uh, compensation for chief executives at many of the uh, oil companies, both larger and even smaller, are no longer linked to production targets in the way they had been in the past. Uh, much more so to overall return. And uh, something we pointed out many times, of course, is the capital, namely the shareholders here, don't want to see more drilling, uh, right. or certainly not a lot more. They want to see return, whether it's in the form of higher dividends and or share buybacks. Uh, and that's an important component here overall of sort of what will happen in the future as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, we thought we had one kind of world, which was that, you know, oil kind of in decline and you were going to be rewarded for being very careful with your capital. Hey, the Fed thought we were in a certain kind of world two weeks ago because they had to rewrite their policies to say we want to make sure we let inflation get high enough, you yeah. know, in the next cycle. So everybody's been upended by, you know, by what happened in the interim. That said, uh, you got drilling rigs up nine straight weeks yes, as of yeah. the Baker uh, Hughes rig count up to 728. Right. I remember when that was we were hoping to get yeah. above seven. I mean, yeah, it's only true. been one quarter in history, I believe, where U.S. oil production has been higher than it is right now. Or a couple All of quarters. True. Well, we do have five to seven percent depletion overall yeah, exactly. every year in the world. So you've right. got to obviously keep, yeah. you, keep you drilling to refill. Keep, it. Yeah. To refill. By the way, a good opportunity. One month from now, June 23rd, countdown. Put it on your calendars. Exxon Mobil at the Crossroads Hour. Detailed documentary, deep dive into ExxonMobil, the company, with exclusive access, but also into the larger questions about getting to carbon neutral by 2050 and so many other things, Carl, that we'll be doing next. We can't wait. Uh, hurry up and get that thing done so we can all watch uh, coming up next month. At the big board this morning, Helmet Aerospace, marking its 2022 Aerospace Technology Day at the NASDAQ. It is Mankind, a biopharma focused on treating diabetes and lung diseases. David, we do have this downgrade out of Sokgen of Chevron. Um, 
raising their oil and gas price scenario, uh, but arguing that uh, the outperformance of Chevron is a little bit uh, overdone. They go to hold. Yeah. Uh, well, we all know. Listen, Chevron shares up 44 percent. Exxon, which I just mentioned, up some 51 percent this year. And the differential in market cap is not that great between the two, our two largest uh, uh, companies there. I, I don't know, Mike. Uh, you know, the uh, energy was 2 percent of the S&P coming into this year. Uh, that has changed. But going from 2 to 4 percent is still not yes. an enormous change given historically what it's been. It's not at all. Um, it, it's hard to argue that in aggregate energy has overshot in terms of its importance to the economy and all the rest. Also, you haven't seen um, a lot of heavy inflows into you know energy specific ETFs. It's not necessarily the buzzy retail trade, even though there's a lot of a lot more interest. So you know, I think if you're a very long term kind of structural thinker. I think people have found it very easy to own these stocks because you just look at the futures curve for oil, even if the prices are coming down and, and gas, uh, it's still very profitable for them. So it's been an easy one for now. What is interesting, though, is the magnitude of outperformance by energy to everything else just in itself maybe creates a little bit of a, of a gravitational pull in the sense that, you know, is everything going to remain immune to the, you know, to, to, to the, bear, yeah. uh, the bear phase? Uh, this spoke this morning says there's an 80 percentage point spread between yeah. consumer discretionary and energy yeah. year to date. 80 yeah. points. It is wild. I would, and I don't know if they were, but I would prefer to look at equal weighted consumer discretionary because otherwise you're talking about Amazon sure. and Tesla, uh, which is not really a read on the consumer. But nonetheless, it's the, the point is absolutely right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it wouldn't, you shouldn't be surprised to see if they stop uh, if energy stops uh, working in the absence of everything else. And what's interesting today is, as I mentioned last week, some of the real beat up stuff started to perk up. Banks come out strong today. J.P. Morgan News, you know, Brian Moynihan, Bank of America, willing to say things seem OK. They've been massive underperformers. They got no help from higher yields in the last few months. Uh, so it seems like that's a, a prerequisite, I think, for the overall market, getting back into this rotational kind of traction that can stabilize the overall index. Although Berkshire owns a lot more Chevron now than it does of the banks anymore, right? Oh, yeah. or, and or a lot more Oxy. I don't even remember. Is he out of the banks entirely or? No. Not quite. Bank of um, America still, right? Or There's some Bank of Wells, America. Or no. uh, he's, he's out, out of Wells. He's out of Wells, right? I think yeah. maybe there's U.S. Bancorp in there a little bit. I mean, American Express, he still owns a you know, yes. almost 20%. Talking about Berkshire here, of course, given the Chevron new, uh, you know, uh, downgrade that Carl just mentioned. It and, is and oxy, it was, adding and, to oxy. And, uh, added to oxy as well. Yes, large, large component of the new buys at, at Berkshire that we learned about a couple weeks ago. Yeah. There haven't been a lot of downgrades of Chevron. The only one I saw lately was RBC back on April 21. Uh, they went to sector perform, but we'll keep an eye on how the street views some of these. You mentioned Moynihan, yeah. and I think we might have the soundbite already on Squawk Box earlier today. Um, but he did talk about raising the minimum wage over there to 22, um, as well as sort of highlighting. Again, he's been pretty bullish on overall consumer yeah. reads uh, lately. He's been leaning on just their aggregate, you know, account balance numbers, the, the, the flow in and out of, uh, of checking accounts. And that, you know, he, he's arguing that that cushion that was built up from the stimulus programs and the way it enabled a lot of people to, you know, clear some debt and get in better uh, position is still in place. That's almost certainly true in the aggregate, and that's why economists talk about that savings cushion remains. Uh, obviously, it's not equally distributed, and so that's the question, is, as we were talking about last week with Walmart and Target. Are you seeing wear and tear on lower-income uh, consumers out there, which, you know, they don't necessarily have the same backstop of the, of the savings? Well, we are going to get this week Costco and Best Buy, yeah. and there were some calls, I know, on the Kohl's number 
uh, that the lower end consumer is, I think, in the words of Cowan, uh, unbuckling a bit. But right. this is what Moynihan said about recession risk this morning. The fear is going up, but the reality is, is no one's really saying there'll be a recession in 22 or 23 yet. We'll see what happens. What is Brian Moynihan saying? We, we think the economy will slow down, but with this kind of spending and this kind of activity, the Fed has a tough job. And this kind of employment tightness, the Fed has a tough job, but it's a job they have to, they're getting after much faster than they've done before. And we'll have to see if they can get the balance right. And we'll get a chance to hear what Jane Frazier over at City thinks when uh, Sarah talks to her later on this morning, guys. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the J.P. Morgan uh, revised uh, upward its estimate of net interest income is, is definitely, you know, that's a concrete number that I think people are leaning on. And again, the credit picture, the, the banks have been trading as if everyone's positioning for an erosion of, uh, of credit, corporate, commercial, consumer. Um, not that it's, you know, recessionary yet. If we get a recession, they still haven't priced it in probably, but they're moving in that direction. So anything that seems like it's okay on the credit front is probably going to be, uh, be welcome. Yeah. Uh, JPM did leave their operating expense guidance unchanged for the year, but then yeah. they later said that 2023 expenses might be a little higher than where the street is currently about 79 and a half. Been a consistent theme, uh, you know, from JP Morgan, the kind of, this is, this is the, the landscape they face and they're willing to make the investments and they've been, you know, over the course of a few quarters now trying to prepare the street uh, for that reality. Uh, stock up, you know, almost 3% this morning at least. Did want to come back to uh, the deal that we talked about earlier, of course, again, to refresh on that. Uh, Broadcom in talks to acquire VMware, a company that really only has uh, enjoyed a, a, a few months here, about six, seven months of truly being uh, public, so to speak. It had been controlled by Dell. Still, by the way, controlled by Dell in a sense. That is Michael Dell and his partner, as well as Silver Lake. They still control roughly half uh, of the company's shares. So they're a very important constituency here in terms of uh, how they feel about the price being offered. That part we don't have for you. It is a cash and stock offer. As I reported earlier, the hope was originally without uh, there having been a leak to perhaps have a deal announced as soon as this Thursday. Typically, you try to move that up as quickly as you can uh, if you are Broadcom. But uh, people close to the talks do indicate, did indicate to me that there are still, and I just want to get this right, material terms that need to be finalized. Wouldn't detail exactly th what those material terms are. But you can see Broadcom's share is not... Uh, not performing too badly, uh, given that news. The company itself, of course, has been extremely acquisitive over a long period of time, led by its longtime leader, Hock Tan, uh, who at some point may be stepping off uh, as CEO. There at least been some talk about succession there. Tom Krause, uh, very much involved uh, in running much of the business as well and or also steering much of their acquisitions, including, I'm told, this one. Taking a quick look, guys, at sort of some of the quick research out this morning. Um, KeyBank says uh, their semiconductor franchise and the data center uh, company's infrastructure software franchise, as well as Avago's, uh, uh, or I should say Broadcom semiconductor franchise and the data center are complementary with uh, VMware. Uh, Piper Sandler says large customer base overlap with uh, CA and Symantec. These are both uh, Broadcom companies. Uh, there are complementary product areas as well. Uh, and Wedbush saying similar things in terms of a sensible deal for Broadcom. So not that many questions from the analysts out there, which is always good. Did hear that there will be a fairly big synergy number, but again, no idea what that might be at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, and we were talking earlier just elsewhere uh, in tech, I mean, about Buffett. There was this downgrade of Hewlett-Packard this morning. Didn't seem to have a lot of impact here. Um, 
it was mostly about the PC cycle and, and you know, kind of manifesting a lot of what we've been hearing from uh, from that part of, uh, of tech and essentially saying going to be downside surprises and obviously production issues. Um, stock is flattish uh, at this point, but it's really, I you know, w- would argue, has been benefiting from a bit of the, the, the Buffett uh, halo effect. Very cheap stock, has been for a very long time. But when you talk about his stake in it, plus the fact that they have just massively aggressive buyback plans that they seem like they're going to stick to, uh, it almost just seems like that overrides, you know, some of the short-term uh, fundamental stuff. So it's, it's just dipped negative now by, uh, by you know, one-fifth of a percent. Uh, worth noting again that Twitter shares are down another 2%, some 13% year-to-date, 37.56. You can do the math at home. What is the spread to 54.20? That is the deal by which it is supposed to be acquired by Elon Musk. That's a contract with specific performance on the equity. Haven't ended up in court yet. I'm still waiting. <laughs> still waiting for that board to pull the trigger uh, and saying he's in breach. Yeah. Carl, I didn't see any tweets over the weekend from Mr. Musk questioning it and going back, of course, to what seems to be his key concern, which is the number of fake accounts essentially and bots on, uh, on Twitter, saying it's far higher perhaps, or at least saying it may well be far higher than 5%, although again, that has been fully disclosed by the company as a possibility in its filings. It was one of his original rationales for taking a stab at it, was fixing that problem. It's like not like it came out of nowhere. No. Uh, by the way, as for Tesla, yeah. uh, 644 is not quite to Friday's intraday low of 633, but having just talked about it a couple of blocks ago, um, we'll see. We'll see how, to he what sold, degree. He sold a lot of Tesla stock to help pay for Twitter at far higher prices. What, like 900-ish? Yes, yeah. 900-ish. Yeah. At least that's six or so billion. Now, obviously, he owns a lot more than that. Uh, and he is uh, he does own 10 percent of Twitter, something along those lines, or maybe it's more. But uh, uh, but nonetheless, good sales. No doubt about him. it. No matter what happens from here. <laughs> yeah. um, good sales. And, and he did also did he not uh, at least reported that he lined up equity investors to reduce the margin loan piece of the proposed financing. That is right. That so is therefore, correct. it loosens up, you know, exactly what, how, how far down that collateral can go before it. You know, impacts anything in terms of the deal. Right. By the way, SpaceX, point. meanwhile, is yeah. on pace to become, I think, the second largest unicorn and after that recent valuation. Yeah, we talked about week. it on yeah. Friday. Yeah. Uh, 70 bucks a share. I think uh, 125 billion is what I'd heard. I think CNBC.com reporting 127 billion yesterday. But this latest round for SpaceX, which is getting ready to launch that giant rocket and even more payloads for Starlink, uh, which is an important important business line, growing importance in terms of providing broadband to underserved areas around the globe. Um, but fascinating to watch that go up by as much as 25% from its last round. It did seem as if it was a tougher or at least less oversubscribed, you know, round of, of fundraising. But in this environment, it's obviously a win uh, to you, get it done. You, I mean, private companies, we follow them, obviously, but the markdowns that have to have taken place in some of these large hedge fund portfolios, uh, whether it's Tiger or D1, very interesting to see yeah. what has really occurred there, given the the public peers have come down so dramatically. How are those right. being marked becomes a key component as well of the performance for some of those very important investors, not to mention the Vision Fund, which we've already seen oh, some yeah. of the performance numbers there. As for the overall tape, Mike, uh, Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley, once again, 3,400 is the level that more accurately reflects uh, earnings risk ahead. Thinks we get there before the end of Q2 earnings season. Right. So we're talking July, August. That also matches up with a lot of the kind of cycle clock stuff on midterm uh, years. That's why there's been this sense out there of, 
Of course we can bounce. We're going to bounce along the way. We've had two 7 to 10% bounces since January or three even. Um, but that, I think there's very little conviction behind the idea that we've seen the low because it just seems there's a lot ahead. Obviously, the Fed going to be raising rates by 100 basis points most likely over that span as well. 3,400, why does that kind of seem like targets congregating there? It's basically the pre-COVID high. Uh, it's probably 14 to 15 times earnings. Um, right now, we get down to 16. Now, two weeks ago, when the S&P was above 4,100, you know, we started talking about this collection of of, of forecast for downside uh, targets in the 3,800, 3,900 uh, area. That's where we've settled for the moment. And that was because you got to 16-ish times earnings and uh, you gave back, you know, almost 40% of the, of the post-COVID rally low to high. All those things are true, but to hope that that's the low means you're kind of hoping we stop at neutral, that the pendulum stops here and doesn't overshoot. Mike's saying you got to build in a margin of safety. That would be more like 3,400. Right. Meanwhile, financials, as for today, uh, are leading, uh, up more than 1%. And uh, J.P. Morgan's your best Dow component. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Good morning, guys. Uh, happy Monday. Uh, nice start to the day, although off of the highs. Two to one advancing to declining stocks. We were three to one. But take a look at the sectors. And uh, Carl's right. Uh, we got banks doing very well. But energy's holding up really well on top of that. Uh, that's uh, the one sector that's holding up. Uh, banks doing great as well. Uh, consumer staples bouncing a little bit, but that has been uh, went from the market leader to the market decliner uh, in the last week or so. Tech's okay, but look at Arc Innovation. Still another, still can't put together a positive string uh, of, of up days here. So we'll keep an eye on that. Banks, as Carl mentioned, doing well. JP Morgan, some positive comments. Their CFO making some positive comments. Nice to see uh, uh, Banks as the leader, essentially, on the S&P 500. So JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, uh, all moving uh, to the upside, as you can see here. Uh, as for consumer staples, at least they've stopped going down. Friday uh, was a decent day. Uh, today, also a decent day. Remember, some of these stocks, I mean, Coca-Cola was, was, uh, went from 65 to below 60 uh, on Thursday. So that's a nice little bounce, at least a little stabilization. Uh, not a lot of encouraging words from the market technicians over the weekend. i uh, been reading Lowry for many years, one of the oldest technical analysis service in the United States. They said, while a relief rally is likely to develop, longer-term trends in Lowry's most valued indicators reflect an unhealthy and still deteriorating market condition. This condition or context does not support firm new commitments to stocks. You hear this all across the technical analysis landscape, a lot of a gloom and doom. So if you look at where we are, I think Mohamed Alarian had the quote of the week at the end of the week on our air last week. He said, this sell-off based on interest rate fears and based on financial conditions was uh, that was initially based on that. And today, it's all the elements of being a growth scare, which means an earnings scare. And this goes to what Mike was talking about and Mike Wilson earlier here, because the earnings estimates are still rising for the S&P. This has been a source of great discussion on the street, why the street's not taking down the estimates. But for 2022, the numbers went up last week. They did not go down. You would think they would be ringing them down. They're not. 2023, the numbers went up again last week. They're not coming down. Uh, and uh, this has been, again, a source of great debates out there. Why aren't the earnings estimates going down? One big reason is energy numbers keep going up rather dramatically. And that the way this is set up, that tends to have an oversized impact uh, on, the, on the estimates. That's number one. Consumer discretionary estimates are coming down a little bit. Not dramatically, but everything else is kind of flattish. Why is everything else so flattish when the street seems to believe there's going to be some kind of earnings drop off? I think 
absent specific guidance uh, for the second half, the sell side analysts uh, are still very reluctant to move. They have that deer in the headlight look, and they're not terribly useful at market inflections like the one we're seeing. By the way, I get asked all the time, how many analysts are left out there on the sell side? There's about 1,700 sell side analysts uh, providing estimates for the S&P 500. They cover an average of about six stocks each. So think about this. There are about 10,000 earnings estimates, guys, uh, provided every single quarter by S&P 500. Now, Mike Wilson made a very interesting point about 3,400. I'll tell you why that, that's interesting. Uh, Carl, the important thing here is anal- earnings are estimated to be up 10 percent for 2022. If you assume no earnings growth and they're going to have to take it down to zero, that would be probably a 10 percent decline in the S&P 500. And guess what? That's about 3,400. So Wilson does have a point, assuming the most pessimistic scenario around earnings emerge. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob. We'll see you later. Uh, Bob Pisani, thank you. By the way, tonight on CNBC, make sure you tune in for a special program, Inflation and Your Stocks, hosted by our own Becky Quick. Guests will include the CEOs of Papa John's. Uh, That's tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Before we go to break, uh, take a look at the bond report. Uh, Not the busiest week for Fed and Macro, although we will get uh, minutes on Wednesday, PCE Thursday. Yields are up a little bit, but still 10-year below 282. Dow's up 341. Don't go anywhere. Good morning. I'm Sarah Eisen here in Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum, where a lot of the conversations from the top CEOs and policymakers are centering on the bear market, the volatility we've seen in stocks, the prospects for a global recession, and of course, the U.S. economy, including the health of the U.S. consumer. I just wrapped up an interview with the CEO of Citigroup, Jane Frazier. Here's what she said about the state of the U.S. consumer right now. The consumer is in good shape. I see it of our credit card franchise and I see it off, our ba- off the banks. Typically, we get about $1 trillion of savings in the consumer. It's $3.6 trillion still. It will come off as the savings rate has come down, but there is a lot of cash um, and deposits sitting there in the consumer. That is a buffer against the inflation that we're seeing. Some optimism there. Find out what she said, though, on inflation and just how much the Fed will have to do to fight that. I'll bring you the entire interview with Citigroup CEO Jane Frazier in the next hour when I join you for Squawk on the Street. We'll be right back. J.P. Morgan Chase hosting its Investor Day in New York City. Leslie Pickard joins us now. She has the latest for us. Leslie. Hey, David. Yeah, we're here at J.P. Morgan's New York City headquarters, where the firm is holding its first investor day since before the pandemic began. Hundreds of people filed in to hear from senior executives at the largest bank in the United States. Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon kicked off the presentation seeking to court favor with investors, unhappy with the stock's 25 percent slump this year. One concern has been that of that expenses. J.P. Morgan reiterated that figure would be $77 billion this year, and Diamond described how they're thinking about spending. There are good expenses and bad expenses. Bad expenses are things which lead to uh, bureaucracy, waste, corporate statism, things like that. Good expenses are new branches, new bankers, things which are going to pay up for a long period of time. 
The key booster to the stock price today, though, is the firm's adjusted outlook for net interest income, excluding markets, to come in at $56 billion this year. That's up from prior guidance of $53 billion, thanks to rising interest rates, which serve as a tailwind for this metric of profitability. And it also implies that Diamond doesn't really see an imminent recession severely destroying NII. Diamond said in his presentation that he thinks the U.S. economy is still strong for now, thanks to monetary and fiscal stimulation. That strong economy being met by two countervailing forces, both of which you've never seen before. Okay, high inflation, QT, and obviously the the Fed's going to try to meet it. We don't know the outcome. That's your guess, but you know we can have a good scenario all the way to a bad scenario. And the war in Ukraine, the humanitarian crisis, the impact of the global economy, rolling in the global oil markets, wheat markets, commodity markets, etc. Wars have unpredictable outcomes. We'll be here throughout the day to bring you all the headlines. Carl? Uh, still leading uh, the Dow right now. 4% move on uh, JPM. Leslie, thank you. Uh, Leslie Picker. Coming up, Sarah Eisen's interview with Cities. Jane Fraser from Davos coming up. Don't go away. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.